Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Camille Fournier, who is the author of The Manager's Path and 97 Things Every Engineering Manager Should Know. Camille is currently the head of platform engineering at Two Sigma. Camille Fournier, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you for having me. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of maintainable software? So there's a few things. So I'm actually a big fan of testing. Um, I do think that software that has good unit tests is more maintainable. I do think that the process of writing unit tests makes you write software that is more maintainable. If nothing else, unit tests provide a level of documentation for software that assuming they are regularly run every time you you change the code, they don't go out of date in the same way that comments and other kinds of documentation can just easily go out of date. I remain to this day a fan of like reasonable unit testing. I'm not such a zealot that I think everyone has to do test driven development or that you know you have to have 95% test coverage. But I think I think they provide just these ha- a handhold into a code base. And you know part of maintainability is really like really in most companies it's can new people come in and work on this software. It's not just about can the person who wrote it change it. Right. We've all probably written software ourselves that we ourselves can't change. But that's, I think, a little bit less common than the circumstance where you find yourself needing to change some software that was written by someone some period of time ago or some team um, and that you've never really like looked at or tried to change. And I think that is is really the one of the biggest challenges of maintainability for a lot of people in a lot of companies, which is, you know, can a new person come in? and actually do stuff with the software. I do think that tests actually help with that because they kind of provide a living documentation of the software as it's being written and you know and, and its current state. Other aspects of maintainable software. I mean, look, software that doesn't do too much tends to be more maintainable, right? So, you know, I think one of the downsides of monoliths and this is I think one of the reasons that people have have become somewhat enamored of services, in the, you know, in recent years, is that monoliths do a lot, you know, but in their nature, they're they're big complex beasts. There's a lot of code that kind of can, you know, well structured monoliths don't have to be bad. But the truth of the matter is, it can be very daunting to look at a massive code base that does lots and lots of different things and figure out what needs to change to to change that software in some way. Services have different problems, right? Like the the complexity of the interaction of pieces maybe isn't in any one individual piece of software. It's in the overall interaction of the system. So it's not that the that complexity completely goes away. But I do think that you know if I'm if I'm thinking solely on kind of the software side of things, I do think that you know the more well defined scope a piece of software has tends to be easier to maintain in the long run, right? So it's easier to maintain a kind of smaller, more specific things than it is to maintain very large rambling code bases. So I'll see. I think those are, I mean, those are just a couple of like very high level. I also think, frankly, maintainability is improved by 
by developers not getting too clever and not sort of defaulting to cleverness. I think there is a fine line of verbosity. I think a lot of developers really love the idea of like a single line of code that does, you know, the equivalent of a hundred lines of code and, and another thing, or you kind of sometimes hear this argument for certain styles of software development. And look, like it's true that when you have to read a lot of code to figure out what it does, that can be challenging. On the other hand, when you have extremely, extremely dense short code, it doesn't always lend itself to glancing at it and figuring out what it does. You often have to think harder than you would having to read, you know, uh, more lines that are more simply stated, essentially, more lines of software that are more simply stated. So, so I do think like there's a, there's a fine line of just kind of readability of the software that, that really does lend itself again to maintainability. Because again, I, I really do think that a lot of maintainability is about can new people come in and make fixes to this or change it or or add to it over time. So I think those are at the top of mind some of the things I think about and look for when I think about maintainability of code. Right. And you were touching on sort of thinking about like onboarding new developers to an existing application. And that's a sometimes a really complicated thing for people to kind of wrap themselves around the dynamics of the organization as a whole and then the software at this, you know, do you have some levels of, I'm not going to hold you to this, I guess, necessarily, but you know, you don't have any specific metrics on like maybe super opinionated about the, the ratio metrics there for test code coverage there. But when it comes to like onboarding developers, say for a, a typical mid to senior level developer, how quickly do you think someone should be able to make contributions to that software project? You know, when they, when they're starting into a, a project, are we talking like a month, a couple of days, that first afternoon? I do. I am a big fan of trying to get people to be able to check something in their first day or certainly their first week. Um, and that is goes far beyond the complexity of just any single code base or, or set of systems, right? That goes to how easy is it for you to get your tooling set up? How easy is it for you to, you know, learn the processes of getting code reviews or, you know, how easy is it for you to make sure you have all of the all of the pieces you need to actually run run tests or run the system if you need to do that to to feel confident in whatever change you made, right? Like how easy is it for you to get help and ask people questions to figure all of these things out? Or how good is the documentation that you have available to to read and learn about these things? So I am a believer in like, you know, good engineering teams make it very easy for people to start contributing changes quickly. Now, that is not the same thing as really being able to make big, meaningful changes. Like there are always going to be systems with a level of complexity where like you don't want people just jumping in and making big changes, right? That, you know, sure, like you could, you know, fix a very small feature. And it's great that you have this like list of very small things that kind of need to be fixed to onboard people. But when someone really wants to add some big new thing or, you know, improve the performance of some part of the system or whatever, that's still going to take quite a bit of onboarding time. And I think that's that's fine, right? You know, the, the goal of being able to make change quickly as somebody new joins a team is a little bit more about have you set all of your systems and processes and documentation up so that that stuff is not a hurdle, not necessarily then a real expectation that your code base is so simple and easy that anyone, you know, can just like jump right in and make big changes super fast. Do you use the metaphor technical debt at all in your day-to-day discussions? 
You know, I mean, I, I, I do certainly, I think everyone does. I, you know, I do think it's a, a little bit of a, I don't, I don't know if it's misused or overused. Maybe is the better, is a better term. I do think that technical debt is often just like thing that people blame, you know, decisions they didn't like in the past, or, you know, it's sort of like a catch all phrase for anything bad that already exists in a system. When I really don't think that's what technical debt is. I mean, I think, you know, technical debt is really supposed to be debt. It's supposed to be, you know, you made a conscious decision today that you know you will have to pay off later, right? You, you, you took a shortcut to get something out the door, you whatever, right? You know, but it, it should be a conscious decision that, that is your, where, where you have an awareness that there will be a later payoff, that it will in fact accumulate problems if you don't figure out how to pay it off, which is different than, oh, we just didn't design this well because we didn't know better, right? And I think there, that's a big difference. A lot of people, maybe it doesn't matter really, like in, in practice, maybe that difference doesn't matter that much. But I do think that like, it's okay to have a system that isn't scaling 10x. That doesn't mean the system is like full of technical debt. That just may mean that you built the system not realizing you would ever need to scale at 10x. And now, guess what? That's great. You've got a successful system. Wonderful. You need to scale it. Okay, like, fine. Let's, let's figure out how to rewrite it and scale it. But that doesn't mean you're doing a technical debt project necessarily. That means, you know, you need to upgrade your, your, your software. You need to upgrade your architecture. You need to you know, rethink the way your systems work. That you know, different. That's a different thing than technical debt. I want to transition a little bit to talk about your book, The Manager's Path, uh, which has come helpful for me managing my own software development team. Um, I know it's a, a guide for tech leaders navigating growth and change, which was published a few years ago. Is this book primarily for people who have recently been promoted, or might this be useful for developers who are looking ahead in their career? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I wrote it expecting that it would be a book mostly read and useful to managers, you know, particularly sort of early mid-career managers, people who are kind of getting started on that path to read over time. Um, and the most surprising thing about the book is actually that I've gotten a lot of feedback from uh, individual contributors and people who have no intention ever of managing that they find it incredibly helpful to them. You know, I, I think the reason that people find it helpful, it is a book that is very much about the stages of management, right? And and different skills that managers need to master in order to manage at different scales. And I think that the thing that people find value about it, so I think the thing that people early in their career find valuable about it is that it actually shows you what that job might look like. And so, you know, you're just starting out, your day-to-day -day is writing code, and you're kind of thinking about maybe where you might want to go with your career I do think that the book does a good job of explaining a little bit of what that life might be like for you, the skills that you might have to learn and how, you know, if you love writing code, you probably don't want to do this job anytime soon. And for more senior people, what I've heard is that they've said it really helps them understand their manager's job better. And so they are better able to communicate with their manager and influence them and, and just kind of appreciate the work that they have to do, which makes them more successful, even though they're not really interested in managing people. Um, so, you know, I, I do think actually it's turned out to be a book that's really useful for pretty much everyone in, you know, in tech, but it certainly was written with the intention of it mostly being useful for people who wanted to, to manage or were starting to manage themselves. One of the things I really enjoyed in, in your book was that you're kind of talking about what 
people might perceive the life might be like once they become managers. And then, then the next section would be like what it's actually really like. And, you know, while thinking through some of those sections and, you know, I'm hearing from some of my own employees over the years of they're like, well, when I'm a manager, I would do it differently this way. And like everything, you're going to have all this control because you're in charge of things and everything's going to work better because obviously maybe your manager is just incompetent about, about one aspect or something. Maybe you like your manager a lot, or maybe there's some shortcomings in your manager and you're like, I'm not going to make those mistakes. And I've learned as a manager of software developers and a manager of managers, you know, in my, my career where, for example, I had a developer that I promoted to be an engineering manager at one point and that went well for a couple of years. And then it went really bad when things got hard. And so I became very afraid of wanting to ever consider promoting another man, another developer to become manager. So I'm like, I just don't know that I have the skill set to train a software developer on how to become a manager because I didn't really have that formal education myself. And so I've been really nervous about that type of experience myself. And so that's one of the things I enjoyed in the book is just kind of like painting those pictures on both sides and being like, it's helping me remove some of that fear I have about maybe considering promoting people to become a manager that were developers that I feel like they have the right characteristics, but there's still always this like, well, I don't really know how they're going to do in that type of role because there's obviously the challenge of, I think you make a good point, especially with like thinking about the tech lead role where uh, in general and software projects where you start doing less software development. And I think when you go from an individual contributor to someone that's contributing some of the time, but maybe having more influence in some other areas, making sure things are removing bottlenecks for other people on the team, trying to find your contribution through other people's contributions, I think is a really difficult thing for a lot of developers. And I see it happen over and over and over time. What sort of advice do you have for those people that are kind of transitioning from developer to technical lead role to really understand that specific part of the role? And like, what are the realities that they really need to come? I mean, I will obviously suggest people read the book, but some kind of like for the, for the purposes of our conversation, what sort of advice could you offer them there? Yeah. Um, I've actually been thinking about this a lot as we, as I'm working on this with one of the, the managers in my, in my org. So I actually think that it's very important if you are trying to transition someone to be a tech lead who wants to eventually try out management, that you're really clear about the non-pure technical parts of the job that they need to do to show that they appreciate that management is not just being the technical person who makes all the decisions and telling people what to do and doing one-on-ones. Um, because in fact, good managers most of your job, most of, I mean, even at my level where I have a very large organization under me, you know, most of your job is thinking about what's going on in the projects, understanding the work that's in flight, understanding the, the customer requirements. It's, there's frankly a lot of project management that needs to be done by managers. And in fact, I think if you want to become a manager and you're transitioning to that via becoming a tech lead, if your manager isn't giving you a lot of the like you know, run sprint planning, if you do that kind of thing, right? Run the standups, look at the work that's happening on the team and make sure that, you know, it's being sort of allocated across people. Make sure that, you know, you're following up with people on whether they're getting stuff done or not, right? Make sure that folks are collaborating on projects, that you're you're thinking holistically about the how these projects are actually going to be done, both from a technical perspective, but also from kind of the the organizing of the work on the team perspective. I think that if you hear me say that, 
and you say, I would never want to do that. You should not be a manager. I actually had a conversation the other day and I've, you know, I'm, I'm still debating how much I, I believe this, but I think I kind of do, which is that like, if you really want control, look, one of the biggest aspects of control that managers actually has is resource allocation, is what are people working on? But you can't do that if you don't manage the projects. If you aren't the person who is enough in the details of the work to know what people are working on and to, and to have some kind of responsibility for understanding the process of getting that work done and, and, and who's working on what, you've actually given up a lot of the control that you might possess, a lot of the power that you might possess as a manager, sort of in favor of not having to do something that maybe you might find a little bit tedious. So I think if you are interested in becoming a manager and you're thinking about it and you've got some, maybe you've got an engineer on your team who wants that and you want to ease them into it, I do think making them a tech lead is a good way to do that. But remember that tech lead doesn't mean the person that makes all the technical decisions, but otherwise just works on their own project. You have to actually give that person responsibility for the work output of the team in some kind of meaningful way. Or else the way I've seen this fail is I've seen people, you know, make tech leads who really are great technical people, right? Very, very good, deep senior individual contributors, but that kind of think their job is like maybe some high level combination of like architecture and mentoring. And that is a useful role. And it may even be reasonable to call that tech lead in certain places. But those people are definitely not really learning the skills that you need to then become a manager. And so, you know, don't go into a tech lead job hoping to eventually become a manager, but only do the job of like, you know, architecture or high level technical decisions and mentoring. Because I, I have to admit that like mentoring is good. It's a good thing. It's a little bit of a part of management, certainly, but it's less of the really like meaty, hard part of being a manager than I think a lot of people believe when they first get into the position. When you're talking with engineers about moving into a tech lead role, do you often use any sort of ratios to kind of estimate approximately how much of their time may not be developing anymore? Yeah, I haven't done that in a while because I'm I'm, I'm far enough removed from from explaining that to people that I haven't thought about it in detail, I haven't reevaluated my own mental model. But I do think that certainly you go from you know most engineers. Hopefully, you're certainly in the in your kind of early mid career. Maybe seventy five to eighty percent of your time is very hands on. And then it may not just mean writing code, but like you know, a lot of your time is is in hands-on individual contribution technical activities of various sorts. And then you've got, you know, interviewing and one-on-ones and team meetings and other stuff like that, right? When you become a tech lead, that number can drop and will drop. And I don't know, I'm trying to think to myself, does it drop to 50%? Does it drop to 40%? I think I probably doesn't drop to 20% unless your team that you, the team that you're tech leading is really big. And if it's dropped to 20%, you might want to talk to your manager about making sure they think that balance is right. Because I, I do think that it's a little bit risky when you're still supposed to be kind of an individual contrib- contributor role to be so far hands off. But, you know, it may switch, right? It may be that you used to spend, you know, you were hands on 80% of the time and 60% of that time was coding or very like closely related activities and maybe the other 20 was, let's say, support or, you know, production releases or whatever, right? 
Um, and now that you're a tech lead, you know, okay, maybe you actually only 20% of your time is coding and the other hands-on stuff is much more either like helping the team debug, thinking about architecture. It may be a little bit more high level, less kind of directly writing of the software yourself. Um, but there should still be like a reasonable hands-on component. I just, it's definitely not going to be 80% of your time if you're actually doing the, the tech lead job I described earlier, where you really are responsible for the work output of the of the team you're a tech lead of and not just, you know, again, sort of architecture and mentoring. I want to touch on, uh, you were talking a little bit about mentoring there and whose role do you think that primarily belongs to outside of like a manager potentially? Do you think uh, mentorship is a responsibility of everybody in the team or certain roles primarily? I think it's sort of a responsibility of everybody. Obviously, mentorship tends to go from more more experienced in whatever aspect to less experienced, right? So that doesn't necessarily mean that like senior people always mentor junior people, right? You may have somebody come into the team who has less experience than you in general, but has a lot more experience about like building data pipelines. And they may mentor you on how to do the thing that they're more experienced in. But generally speaking, I do think mentoring goes goes with experience, whatever that experience may be. I don't think it falls on any one person's shoulder. I do think, look, if you've got a bunch of folks right out of college joining your team, they are going to get more mentorship than they give for a few years. They may start giving mentorship to people like interns or, you know, after a couple of years, they will probably be some of the early mentors for the next round of college hires, for example, on certain aspects. But I do think everyone can do mentoring. And I think it's I do think it's very important that senior engineers make an effort to make time for mentoring, whether they want to be managers or not. Like, you know, you're sharing knowledge to everyone on the team, sharing skills, teaching people how to be better, offering advice. Like these are these are things that you have to offer and helping other people gain those skills on your team is actually kind of selfishly good for you. Because particularly when you kind of mentor people or train them on how to do something that you're the only one who knows how to do, you now have freed yourself up to do other things. And I think that, frankly, is like, you know, one of the one of the undervalued benefits of mentoring and training and and forcing yourself to help teach people on your team how to do things is that once you teach them and, and show them the way, that is stuff that you don't have to be the only person who knows how to do. And that's actually really valuable. I think that's that's an important point there. I'm always curious about teams where they might have some senior developers that maybe didn't feel like they had mentors at one point. And so they maybe they have this certain attitude or approach of like, I taught myself this stuff over the years and figured this stuff out. Other people on my team should be able to have this, should be able to figure this stuff out too. Um, I don't have the time to help this junior or mid-level or intern person out on the, on the team. What sort of advice do you have for them on how to start maybe carving out and to see that as you you touched on like why it's valuable in terms of it'll help take some things off of their plate. But if there's that time constraint concern that they're like, I don't know how to do it well or yeah, what what do you you say to the folks like that? I mean, I do think like if you don't have the bandwidth to mentor at all because you're so swamped with work, that's probably a conversation to have with your manager to say, look, I feel like I should be spending some time with this new hire, getting them up to speed. And, you know, I just don't have the time because you keep piling stuff on me. How can we how can we rebalance this? Sometimes you need to talk to your manager. Sometimes, frankly, you just need to not do it. Like, I do think 
there are occasionally times when developers have more power than sometimes I think they realize in terms of just ability to say like, that's not going to get done yet. And to push back a little bit against pressure coming from your manager or from your product manager, whoever's bringing pressure on you to say like, I have, you know, I have other, other priorities are competing for a time and this is just going to take a little longer. Or sometimes, frankly, the right thing to do is just sandbag your estimates with the assumption that you have to do other things. Like one of the ways that like developers fail in, in estimating when they're sort of overly optimistic is they just don't think through like, you shouldn't just be estimating with the assumption that all you have to do is focus on this one task and it's done because you're going to have to do interviews. You're going to have to do support. You're going to have to answer questions. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to get sick occasionally or want to go on vacation or whatever, right? All of these factors sort of, sort of are going to come into play. And part of being good at estimating is actually really controlling your time effectively, but also the only way you're going to control your time effectively is by thinking bigger than just like this one tiny little piece of work that is, you know, in front of you, this one tiny little ticket that you're like, oh yeah, that's like, you know, that's only like two days of work. It's like, well, it's two days of work if you don't get interrupted at all. And that's why your tickets always take a week of work and you're still not able to mentor because, you know, you're not really owning your own, owning your own time. So I would encourage, if you don't want to mentor, that's a different conversation, right? If you want to be, able to give back a little bit more to your team, or you're just looking for bandwidth to do stuff that you think you should be doing, but you don't have time to do, I would actually recommend if your manager isn't listening to you and you say, I need, you know, I need help balancing my schedule to just start adding a little bit of overhead into how you, how you estimate work to make time for that other stuff. Because I think that's actually the responsible thing for you to be doing for yourself and for your team. What's been your experience with, I don't know if you're, you know, we're recording this right now during the time of COVID where people are, I'm assuming in your teams are working remote now, or maybe they already were. But for those listening who are like, I've always struggled with a little bit with the idea of how to do remote mentoring to some capacity, especially with more junior people. Do you, have you had much experience that or seen that been successfully done on, on your, some of your teams or some advice there? I have done it. I mean, I think that mentoring here, like what I will say about mentoring is the following, like a little bit of mentoring challenge is really actually on the person being mentored. So I think that I have done successful, like random, a remote or not remote mentoring of people that I don't have any relationship with. They, for whatever reason, like reached out to me and, you know, got me at just the right moment where I was like, you know what? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll jump on a call with you, you know, I don't want you to drop out of the tech industry or I, you know, I have, I have advice to offer you on this. And those work because the person has a very kind of specific thing they're looking to get out of me as a mentor. And I can, and therefore like, we don't have to spend all this time kind of establishing trust and, you know, because it's like, look, like you're really kind of asking me for advice and I'm happy to, to give that. And I can give advice on, you know, on Zoom or on a phone call as easily as I can give it in person. I think that establishing a long and ongoing mentoring relationship is harder, definitely. So if you're, you want to, you know, if you're a company, like we have interns started this week at my company, and it's a grand experiment for us. We are not usually a remote company. We are usually very much an, an office culture. And we did not want to cancel our intern program because that's terrible for everyone involved. So we are really hoping that we can make it work. And we've 
done a lot of work to make sure our interns, they don't only have an intern manager, they have another intern who's kind of partnered with them. They have buddies who are either former intern, interns themselves or new college grads. And, you know, we've, we've tried to set up a lot of different touch points for them. But I do think that, like, establishing that trust remotely is hard. And so as much as the mentor can try to give the mentee maybe some idea of, like, come prepared to ask me about this kind, these kinds of things, right? Like, we don't know each other. Here's some stuff that I know about. Why don't you come prepared to, like, ask me about something in this category? You've got to really, like, you just need conversation starters, I think, is, is going to be part of it. But I do think that remote mentoring, like, long, establishing new relationships, particularly at work in this circumstance, I think is going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to be work for both sides. Yeah, I, I hearing you talk about just how you're starting to experiment there, like, it was literally just having a conversation this week because we were, we do a lot of internships here as well, but we were like, well, we pause the ones during the spring. We usually do it every, every season. And we're like, well, okay, let's not do it this summer. Let's say, let, I mean, let's do it this summer, but we might not get it perfect, but we should, we need to at least take this first step as an organization to figure out how this is going to work. We can put our best effort in there. We, we think we know some potential problems. Let's, let's talk about that and just be open with it. And then we also realized after all these conversations that the, the people that we would likely be bringing in just went through a very weird experience where their education process went remote for the last couple months. And they might actually know a lot more about how to work remotely now with their peers. And you know, so it was like this realization like, oh, shit, we're, we might actually get to benefit from the, that, the fact that they're dealing with us right now, too. Everybody's dealing with us. So why don't, why don't we like tip or let's, let's jump into the pool here and figure this out and not just like wait another season and figure it out then. So for us, we decided that mentorship needed to just be baked into the process a long time ago. And so it was like our people that have been here the longest were previously mentored by people that used to work here and knowing that we bring in junior people and they're, they're going to be buddied up and being mentors to interns. And so that way everybody's getting a little bit of that exposure on a regular basis to help foster that is just like a culturally th a thing that we do. We just, we put the time in to do that and um, it, it's, it's helpful. So, but it's not always perfect. And so I think that, that that's okay too, but I think that's, that's the world. It's a messy world. When you talk a little bit about team processes, in, you know, in the book, you know, in ways for engineering teams to kind of stay on top of things, they need to be, say, refactored or cleaned up. You know, we touched on technical debt, things that they consciously made decisions on, We'll take the shortcut now, but we'll have to come back. In your opinion, what sorts of strategies do you think don't work for managing that type of stuff? Well, obviously, it doesn't work to just completely ignore it, <laughs> which a lot of people do uh, to their to their long term peril. You know, some things that, that sort of work, but I'm not sure are the best are like, oh, every Q4 we're going to do tech debt work. Now, I have actually done this in the past maybe not every Q4, but I've definitely done versions of this. I think it's okay. Um, and it can be a good bootstrap if you really like have been neglecting something for quite a while and you, you really sort of need to focus. And, and particularly if you're in the kind of business that has like code freezes for actually releasing, right? So maybe you're in retail and you don't really want to make any major changes during the holiday season because everyone's buying that. So you want to keep everything really stable you know, okay, like maybe we'll use this opportunity to clean up some tech debt, add some automation, you know, whatever, whatever you need to do there. I think the downside of, of something like that, there's a downside to just the 
management of your like business partner expectations there. So if you're not in a business where you're already in the unexpected freeze, trying to tell your partner, we're not going to work on anything you want us to work on while we work on this other thing for a while, doesn't always go over that well. I'm a big fan of managers and tech leads and whomever's sort of planning to work for teams of really always trying to leave headroom as much as possible all the time for various kinds of activities. So like, you know, I really do think that we just often are very optimistic. Like all we're going to work on is features. I've got five engineers and that means I can do five engineers worth of feature work this sprint. And that means I can get whatever, you know, if you do story points or whatever, I can get all this stuff done. And it's like, no, you've got to support the software you've already written. Probably most companies, developers are also supporting their software in some way. Again, you've got to do all that like cultural interview stuff, meetings, one-on-ones, whatever. But also, you know, hey, actually, like we know we need to be making this, you know, we need to be making it easier for us to release the software or, you know, we know we just cannot change this part of the code base because it's just super tightly coupled to the data model and it's very fragile and probably we need to have some room for someone to be over there kind of kind of working on improving that. And so I think like like it's not a good idea to just assume that you're going to stop everything and work on tech debt. And it's an even worse idea to say you're going to stop everything and rewrite the whole system in a completely new language and a new framework and a new system and you'll just, you know, like do a massive shift over to the new thing. Like that basically never works. When it does work, it is so painful. And I, I have, I actually have a, a talk on, on this topic, but like I have known many people who have gotten fired from senior leadership jobs for suggesting that and then failing to deliver on it for a very long time. It is a very risky move. So probably you're not going to do like a big bang rewrite. You know, you, you just need to make slack and breathing room on your team in general for addressing issues like this. If you can do that well, that's how you keep sort of continual improvements happening. And you can usually keep on top of a lot of the tech debt. Again, not always everything. Sometimes there are just really big projects that you need to actually really plan for and get buy-in to execute against. But I think teams that run well, that leave themselves enough slack to clean up for themselves and actually think through all the parts of their projects tend to do a lot better um, at managing this. Do you think a, a develop like an individual contributor needs to ask for permission to take care of small amounts of technical debt, or is at what level do you feel like that needs to be a decision that someone's making on a task by task basis versus? I just think I know that I've talked with a number of people of developers over the years where they're feeling like, all right, we know we brought up these issues with the product team or what have you. We brought up like there's some concerns and. I don't feel like they're prioritizing this right now because they're always working on the what's next in the feature backlog. So we, I don't feel like I can ask to spend more time like, hey, we're we don't have enough test coverage here or things like that. And so they they stop asking for it and they make maybe translate that as, I guess testing isn't a priority here. Do you have any advice on to like the individual contributor to help them kind of think beyond that a little bit more? Yeah. So like I do think there are two sides to it. I do think, you know, that. Part of your job is doing what needs to be done. And if you think that you need more tests in an area, probably you should carve out time to write tests. That being said, like tests are actually the best example of something where in most cases, that's something that you can do as a break, right? That you can do, you can spend half an hour or an hour 
writing some tests. Now, if you have no tests at all, bootstrapping that is a harder problem, right? But let's say you've got a few tests, just they're not very good. That's the kind of project that actually lends itself pretty well to being like, I'm a little bit burned out on like feature work. I want a distraction. I'm going to go work on tests. I'm going to work on documentation. I'm going to go work on, like, I'm just going to use this as like a break. I'm sure there are some controlling managers, product managers, whatever out there who might freak out about this. But I think the vast majority of folks in those roles, like, don't care about that level of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just cleaning up as I go. I do. And I do think like developers should very much feel like it is their responsibility as a developer to do that. What I see people struggle with, though, is there are some developers who go a little bit down the rabbit hole with this stuff and just really get distracted. And when you find yourself going on a tech debt task that you thought would take maybe even a day, but it's two weeks later and you're still kind of, you know, distracted with it, that is a sign like that you probably, first of all, you probably have just gone too deep down the rabbit hole. And unless you've been actively kind of socializing that with your your manager or your team or someone, you're going to need to be socializing that with someone, you are definitely at risk of just like not using your time well at that point, right? Everything has to be a little bit about like, how are you thinking about the investment of time that you're making, right? And nobody cares about like, you know, slippage around the edges in most companies. I mean, there I'm sure there are companies that, that are, you know, draconian about this stuff, but like, I've never run a team where I've cared about oh, yes, of course you would and like wrote some tests or you cleaned up that documentation or, you know, you you helped that team over there, like figure something out, like little things like that. I just I, I, I never care about and I would be mad at my managers if they cared about that. But on the flip side, when you see someone who's like, oh, actually, I just spent the I spent this whole sprint like rewriting this piece of code because I didn't really like how it was factored. That's a bad sign. Usually that that tends to be a sign that like you are not really respecting the work that your team needs to be done. You're not necessarily socializing that well with the rest of your organization. So that's where I think you should be careful as an engineer. Like you should be able to justify the work. And, you know, that's not always possible. There are, I think with larger tech debt projects, it is frustrating. There are definitely times when you know you need to do something and your manager just won't listen to you. And I don't have a great solution for that, unfortunately, this is why I like technical managers. This is why I, I do want managers to be reasonably technical so they can at least appreciate those arguments when they hear them. But there are definitely also times when I see engineers kind of go off on their own for way too long. And, you know, that's probably not a good idea for most people. We'll be back with our interview with Camille in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in our industry who I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Camille Fournier. When you're working across your teams, do you find that there's some effective metrics that your, say, your managers that are that you have working with under you, uh, aside from you know, aside to you, uh, in terms of like the metrics they're using to kind of 
monitor the health of their development team? Or do, do you care a lot about metrics in that capacity? Well, so, so I'm very careful about metrics. I don't like metrics that are to the individual level because I think those tend to be noise. Like we, most software engineering is very much a team sport. Even if we're all working in parallel, like at the end of the day, we're working on projects that need to come together in some kind of harmonious fashion. Um, and so I'm always very like, I really don't like things like how many story points did each individual developer finish or how many lines of code they write or like, who cares? The number one metric that I do care about, even though I don't actually force anyone to really report this up to me at this point, but you know, if I'm like having to debug a team and I think a team is struggling, I actually look at how, how often they're able to deploy their code. I think that's like the number one really bullet thing that I have seen for software engineering, software development teams, is that teams that are able and do in fact deploy their code frequently, and frequently might only mean once a week, but it certainly doesn't mean less often than once a week, right? If you're not deploying software at least once a week, that actually tends to lead to a lot of health problems on the team because it 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 turns out that like when you're not deploying that often, it's often hard to deploy. Deployments often have problems because you're trying to integrate too much stuff at once. You're trying to make very large changes all at once, which means you are more likely to introduce problems. It's harder to find the problems because there's so much stuff there. It's actually hard to kind of bisect and debug what went wrong. People like to see their work go live. I do. I think all engineers, almost all engineers out there, like there is a pleasure to feeling like your thing is done. And what makes software done? It, it's really done when it's running in production, right? Um, and so, like, I had a, I had an engineer. I will never forget this. Once described a team to me. She described it as that the team was constipated, and I was like, oh my god, that is such a, you know, very evocative description. And she was absolutely right. This team had a really hard time releasing their software. They, they. They had a really hard time making change. And actually, that team was a team where I, I did a thing which I don't do very often, which is I went in and I said to the leader of that org, you need to get you need to start releasing all of your products at least once a week. And don't you know, not, it doesn't have to start immediately next week, but you're gonna have to do the work. But I want to see your team dedicated to getting the work done so that you feel confident releasing your products at least once a week. And frankly, that change made a big difference in the health of that team because now they're able to get stuff done. We're seeing changes. They're shipping more. It's not the silver bullet that, you know, all of a sudden everything is everything that was bad on a team is now wonderful because you can ship more often. But I actually do think that like the ease of ease and frequency with which people are able to make change and push that change all the way to whatever production is for your for your company. If you are worried about the health of your team, start there. <laughs> I think that's some sated advice there. I'm always thinking about how you'll see some teams are like they're, they're, they're bundling too many things up into a single release. And then that just makes the whole process of reviewing, QAing, everything that you, your team may go need to go through for to push something out. It just becomes there's, you're more nervous about pushing out a lot of things. And then also when you have to like debug things, you're like, well, what aspect of the all these changes might be? you know, the influencer here. So I think that that's some good advice there. So as we kind of work to wrap this conversation up, I have a few last quick questions for you, Camille. What non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? 
non-software development. I probably, I guess I would say, um, probably what got you here won't get you there is probably actually my number one most often recommended book, particularly for people who are sort of in the mid stages of their careers and wanting to break into more senior roles and not understanding why their manager is saying they're not ready, right? I think a lot of people get promoted very quickly early in their career in the tech industry, definitely. Um, and then, you know, they find themselves 10 years in or, you know, 15 years in, who knows, like some number of years in, and they're like, well, when's my next promotion? And their manager's like, mm, uh, you're, that's, you know, I don't, I don't see one for you anytime soon. Um, and I think that book is useful because it really helps you realize that, you know, you can't just coast on the same things forever in your career. There is a point in, in everyone's career where the game changes, even for individual contributors, your, your work looks different at a certain level of seniority. And I think having that mental understanding of that, um, internalizing that is very, very useful. So particularly for those of you who are maybe listening to this and are kind of finding yourself in sort of the middle part of your career and like, well, how do I, how do I grow further? You know, that book might be helpful. Great. I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts on leadership and technology online? I am a tweeter. So my, my Twitter handle is at Scamille, S-K-A-M-I-L-L-E. And yes, that is because I liked ska music a lot in high school. And I tend to post links to blog posts and things like that there. You know, I blog very intermittently these days. Um, and I it's either on Medium. I have my own blog as well, which is alightedbranches.com is that is the website there. But those are probably the the best thing if you if you are on Twitter is to follow me there. That's probably the easiest place to find me. Well, great. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Camille. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Yes, thank you for having me. 